This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with people who see possibilities that compel them to go against the status quo, but who sometimes struggle to do so because of the noise and norms of the world. I call them Sensitive Rebels, and we'll discuss the challenges, successes, and lessons from their journeys as they keep moving forward in their quest to make a difference in the world. Hey, Sensitive Rebel. Today, I'm talking with Darren Joe. Darren is an entrepreneur, writer, and podcast host. In 2012, he started Touch MBA, which has helped thousands of applicants worldwide get into the world's top business schools. He hosts the Touch MBA Admissions Podcast, which is one of the top-ranked MBA podcasts, as well as ASE, a podcast which explores how self-employed creators and entrepreneurs manage their well-being and do their best work. In April 2021, he published his first book, The Failsafe Solopreneur, Six Essential Practices to Manage Your Well-Being, Working for Yourself. A graduate of Princeton University, he resides in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. A former Division I tennis player, Darren enjoys salsa dancing and playing Catan to relax. Now, I learned about Darren when I heard him on the Tropical MBA podcast. He was talking about his book. And in about five minutes, I knew I had to have him on the show. Why? Well, there were three big reasons. And the first one is that well, he's just he's willing to talk about the dark side of entrepreneurship, the downsides, the difficulties, the challenges, stuff which way too many people avoid talking about, minimize, or act like it just isn't there. Two, he's really open and vulnerable about his experience, about the ups and downs. Uh, the book is it's very readable, it's very personal, but at the same time, so number three, he has some great ideas and tools in the book that'll really help you cope with the challenges that come up on the entrepreneurial journey. The book is aptly titled and it definitely belongs on your business book shortlist. I had a great time talking to Darren, really appreciate how genuine he is and the perspective that he brings to entrepreneurship and to life, frankly. And now here's our conversation. How's it going, man? It's going as well as it can go uh, here. It's storming outside. We're under a pretty strict lockdown here. We're making the most out of life right now. So you guys still have with COVID and everything, you've still got a pretty significant lockdown situation. I know when we had talked a little while back, you were describing some of it to me. Is it still that strict where you have to be like you're authorized only to go out at certain times or what's the situation there? Yeah, that's exactly it. Our numbers are at the highest it's ever been. So the government has been really strict about putting in place curfews so people don't leave after 6 p.m. You have to have a really good reason to be on the street, whether it's getting food or working for an essential business. Otherwise, stay out the street, don't meet up with anyone, isolate. And that's what they think is the best way to, to fight this virus. <laughs> yeah. Which can be challenging and isolating, which in the whole isolation piece is something that we're going to get into in our conversation along the way today, I'm sure, because I know that's a yes. big topic for you. Uh, but where we're going to start, of course, is with the question of what you, Darren Joe, are rebelling against. I've been waiting to answer this question. <laughs> Steve. So I'm rebelling against our sort of one-sided picture of entrepreneurship, which is focusing on the money, the lifestyle, and the freedom. Let's be clear, I've enjoyed a lot of those things, and many of them have been amazing. But my 10 years of experience, like as a solopreneur, has taught me that so much of this path is about managing the downsides of entrepreneurship. And I just don't think that enough people are talking about these things. I don't think enough of us are talking about the high costs of entrepreneurship, right? Not just 
Financially, of course, I think everyone understands it, it's risky to start your own business, but the costs to our well-being. And so I just want to bring more light to this side of the path. I recently wrote a book about it, but essentially over my 10 years, I realized that man, it, this is pretty tough. There's a lot of failure involved. There's a lot of anxiety, right? There's a lot of instability and loneliness, all these things. But what I came to realize is that these downsides are simply the shadow sides of everything I was pursuing. So 10 years ago, I quit my job and I've been on this path now, being self-employed, having my own business. And everything I wanted in life after quitting my last corporate job was to create new things, to go on this crazy adventure, to do meaningful work and to have more freedom with how I control my day. And it's been amazing. I've been able to control my day for 10 years now, but those things simply come with costs. In fact, they have to come with costs. So even though it's a bummer thing to talk about, I'm really compelled to talk about it because I just want more entrepreneurs to know they're not alone in facing these things. Anyone who knows me and knows the podcast knows exactly why I had to have Darren on is it ex is exactly this. And I'm really grateful for the fact that you are putting this message out there. And when I came across you on the Tropical MBA podcast and then found your book, I was like, oh, I got to talk to this guy because I think you're right. There's so little attention given to this element of things. And yes. it's yet it's so important, right? It's not all about the Lamborghini and the traveling around the world or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever ridiculous things, or even just the, the big bank account, because there are challenges that come with this. Everything comes with a price. And I think the other thing that folks you'll hear as we go through this conversation is it's not that there aren't ways to cope with and even maybe grow or learn from these dark sides, but it's so important that they get acknowledged so that we can deal with them. So I want to wind back here, Darren, and then tell me about how you became aware that, oh, one, there is this dark side or these dark elements to it. And two, this awareness that this isn't getting enough attention and it needs more. So give us some background there. You know, when I quit my job, I was 30 years old and I will never forget the day after I quit my job. I woke up at six in the morning, which is early for me. I know it's not early for you, Steve. But right. It's early for me. <laughs> I was up without the alarm clock. I was so excited to just build something new and do my own thing. I think I'd always been craving to, to start my own business for a long time. And I had worked in the corporate world for seven years and I was ready to kind of strike it out on my own. And, and I'll never forget the excitement of those first few days and months. After the first six months of brainstorming ideas and your podcast is called The Sensitive Rebel. And I definitely felt like a rebel. All my friends were, you know, in their high paying jobs. I'm like, you know, screw you guys. I'm going to do my own thing. I've been waiting years to do this. Let's go. So I think I started to realize how difficult it was, maybe because I wasn't able to make a sale, one sale for the first year. You mean you didn't just have your first thing become like an instant hit? You joke about that, but that was my mindset because I didn't really know any better. That's all I read about. And, and I still see the headlines in my inbox every day about these newbie entrepreneurs making millions of dollars in three months or two weeks or two years or whatever the timeline is. That's a, the guaranteed winning headline, right? For podcasts, for small business media. Anyways, I was not that person. I couldn't make a sale for a year. And even when I did, it was basically being an employee for someone else's small business, doing consulting. And six months later, I made my first sale. I'm a year and a half into this journey, Steve. I'm 30 and it's the wrong time to have this gaping hole in your resume 
where, you know, you have nothing to show for it pretty much. And so I wrestled a lot with what's wrong with me. Everyone is doing this so easily, but I, I can't even get one sale. I'm just not meant to be an entrepreneur. So I had a lot of this sort of doubt. Obviously, I felt like a failure. I was anxious because, you know, I mean, we all need money to survive. So I think that taking the first, what was it, three or three years of just slowly trying to experiment with business models and finally getting my business up and running to where I was making money and it was sustaining my lifestyle, that took four years, honestly. Let's be honest, now that we're throwing out all these dirty details. And, and, and four years is quicker than it goes for some people, but it's longer than a lot of the hype would have us believe. Now, yes. while, while you're doing this, were you in Vietnam at that point or where were you geographically at that point? Yes, I was in Vietnam. So my business is in the MBA space. So I used to mm -hmm. be a former MBA admissions director for a top business school in Singapore. So I thought, wow, well, there's not many people like me in Vietnam. This is a growing economy. They highly value education and they want to study abroad. They want to study in places like Singapore, the US, Canada, et cetera. Why don't I bring my expertise to this market and help them here, help Vietnamese here? So yeah, I was in Vietnam the entire time. And so you're jumping on this path and you're going into it and you're just struggling. Like, I can't even make a sale. What the heck is wrong with me? All of that. But you didn't abandon it. You kept going. Yes. So during those early difficult days, how did you talk yourself into continuing to, to do this, to, you know, how talk yourself through that difficulty of not being instantly successful and having a, a garage full of Lamborghinis? So I think it was really three things. One was I'm just a stubborn person and that can both serve and work against me. And in this case, because I'd quit my job and I didn't want to walk back with my tail tucked between my legs. And so for better or for worse, I was stubborn about it. Like, I am going to make this work. I think the second thing was that luckily I had enough savings. And let's be honest about this. If, if my savings were low, I would have had to walk back to get a job. So I think that's important to mention. But third, I think what really helped me the most was meeting people doing what I was trying to do. Because yes, I had succeeded in the corporate world, but I didn't really know anyone who was making a living or even a good living online. I'd read stories, but I didn't really know anyone doing it. And I think that finding those people and just realizing that they weren't necessarily smarter than me or like that much more experienced than me, really. It's just that they had stayed in the game long enough and just chipped away, tried out enough ideas till one actually took off. And entrepreneur after entrepreneur who were essentially lifestyle, sort of location independent entrepreneurs, that's where I would put myself in that group. They all told me the same thing. Like they didn't work harder on their third business. It just worked for some reason. It was the right time or the right circumstances. And so I think having those reference points and seeing what they were doing, Steve, really helped me because there's no book. Books are fantastic. I know you love books. So do I. I get great ideas, but this is a, a practice. I, I truly believe that everyone's path is unique to them. And so you need to probe and sense and adjust, probe, sense, adjust. This isn't a sort of thing where you can have a template and then everything works. Much as books like to present recipes to us, yes. it's not like baking a cake. And the reason it's not like baking a cake is the ingredients in a cake are either inert, which I mean, or in the sense that they don't have any autonomy. They behave a predictable way, but the world is way more complicated than that. And there's way too many other things here for sure. 
Exactly. It's a complex environment. This is something new that I've learned. I have this language to talk about it after I wrote my book. There's complicated problems where you seek out an expert and that expert can tease out cause and effect. And there's complex problems, which I believe is the realm of entrepreneurship, um, where cause and effect aren't you can't really tell what they are unless you're looking backwards in hindsight. And the same goes for this life as well. And I want to make this point that I think one of the reasons why it's so challenging is because you're not only facing sort of existential threats with your business, because let's face it, most businesses don't survive, but you're also kind of facing this existential threat, so to speak, in this complex space of your life, because there's no clear marker of success. There's no vice president, there's no big bonus to go after. This is about designing a life that works for you. And you have to figure that out. Most of us do. I, luckily, some people know exactly what, what they want. But I think most of us have to figure out, you know, what constitutes success for us on this path. And that takes a lot of trial and error. When you started to recognize, like, I need some community here, right? How did you go about finding other people who were on the journey and building connection with them? You mentioned the Tropical MBA podcast, and I have to give those guys a lot of credit because I was a huge fan of their show and they were hosting events. And I went to their very first conference and that was like the start of it. Oh my gosh, there's like Derek Sivers was there, who's one of my heroes. He was sitting right next to me wearing sandals right. and a t-shirt and just taking notes as this 19-year-old kid was talking about selling e-cigarettes in China. I mean, it was totally bizarre world coming from a corporate background, seeing that it didn't really matter how old you were or your rank, quote unquote. It was just about creating value for, for others. Hopefully not e-cigarettes, hopefully something more valuable than that. But I think going to that conference was really eye-opening and meeting other people who were really running successful businesses and then staying in touch with them in Saigon and welcoming, you know, others who were passing through town and just trying to just meet as many people who were doing this and then forming accountability groups with them. And it, that was so powerful. I think it's huge because that's how you, one, get the experience of recognizing I'm not alone. And then the potential of starting at least to see that, yeah, the struggle piece of this is not unique to me, but there's always a certain a hesitancy to share the the more negatives or the challenges by and large. Yeah. And there's often can be a little bit of almost of a posturing of things. So how did you either find the right people or get that piece of the conversation going? So I think I was really lucky, Steve. My first mastermind group was run by this Englishman who ran this site called ArtWeb. And he was a fantastic facilitator because he made it very clear this is a safe space. We don't talk about, you know, our business problems outside of this group. It's confidential. And he really created a really great sort of atmosphere of trust where we could really be open and share our struggles, whether that was with money, with business models, with lack of productivity, whatever. And once someone is vulnerable in that way and brave enough to be vulnerable, then other people in the group can also be that way. And then it just, again, you realize yeah, all these guys and women are, are going through the same thing as me. So I'm not unique here. And I can really learn from the other people in my group, from their working experience and their marketing methods and their strategy as well. So you just feel so much less alone because oftentimes you can't talk about this stuff with your employees, with your customers, but you can talk with other business owners openly about this and really share deep strategic problems you might have or issues, hiring issues you might have, et cetera. So 
I think I was lucky. I think, yeah, really creating that safe space and finding a group of other business owners who are close to your level and maybe facing similar challenges. I think that's the best sort of space to be in. I think that you hit on two, I think, really important things. Finding people who are at a similar level, because if they're too far behind you, there's not a lot that you know you can learn and grow from. If they're too far ahead of you, it really triggers the inferiority stuff if you're not careful. And it can also be over kind of an overstretch. But what you were talking about with this mastermind and having a facilitator for the mastermind who we did a good job of cultivating a safe space and really encouraging that. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, it's one of those things where once someone goes there, once someone's willing to be vulnerable, then it becomes so much easier for others to do it. And once you get enough of that going, it actually becomes more uncomfortable to not be vulnerable. Right. Because the norm changes. And in these small groups, we can create an environment where the norm is to be real, to be vulnerable, to be talking about, yeah, I haven't made a sale in two months. I'm not sure how I'm going to pay my mortgage next month, you know, which is not something people are going to be bragging about on Instagram or talking about um, in their on their LinkedIn or whatever, because yeah. that doesn't uh, look good. I mean, even though that is at times the reality. Yeah. And I would argue that even past sort of business help and support, like this idea of small groups and and group vulnerability is so powerful, whether it's to combat alcoholism or to be a part of whatever faith you're a part of, or just to be a good friend and to have people over for dinner in small groups. And so running my business on my own, essentially, for many years has really made me realize the importance of those small groups of four or five and creating that safe space to really share and help each other out. Because that's really, I, I believe, like the sinew of society, those small groups, whether that, that could be family, of course, as well. We are relational creatures. And on some level, we need to have that. And so in theory, you think connecting everyone via the internet sounds great. Then we're just one big community, but it's too big. Because what you're getting at these smaller groups, there's something there, I think, that's really powerful. And so it sounds like for you finding some like-minded people on similar journeys, these groups really, really important to help you further the endurance to keep experimenting, which is an important, I think, piece of the process until you started to find some success. That's exactly it. To just keep experimenting. And yeah. And Steve, you've heard about Dunbar, right? Dunbar's number? The Dunbar number. Yeah. 150. 150. Is it 150 or something like that? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it's 150. It's the size of hunter-gatherer societies, the size of professional armies throughout history. But Dunbar was an anthropologist who measured like the size of our prefrontal cortex, right, to the rest of our brain and uh, compared that to monkeys. And he estimated that 150 was about the number of relationships we could maintain. Mm -hmm. And he has this really interesting rule called the rule of three, which is We tend to operate in our inner circle, which is about five, times that by three. Then we have what he calls a super family, which is about 15 people, times that by three. And then you have a circle of about 50 people, which is your clan, right? People you'd invite over to your place for dinner, times that by three. And then you have your tribe. And that's 150 people you can maintain relationships. You have the cognitive bandwidth to do so. But I found this concept really crucial because my family did not support my entrepreneurial journey. And so I had to find a new inner circle. I had to find, you know, three, four people who would really support my new identity as an entrepreneur. And some of those people came from my mastermind group. Some of them were good friends who believed in me, who believed I could be that person, because I think we underestimate the power of environment and our friends and contacts holding up a space for us to be who we desire to be. 
I think that's as much a part of the equation as, oh, I lifted myself up with my own bootstraps and I, I did it myself. It's as much people's belief in you. And so if you can rig the game so that you create that space, right, for yourself to step into, that's what really helps me as well. You say rig the game, but the reality, I think, is that this is just about being more conscious and deliberate in creating your community versus just going with whatever community happens to be around you or is given to you, which leads me to something I want to talk about a little bit. You said your family was not supportive of your entrepreneurial journey. And I know this from reading your book and from hearing you in other interviews. Tell me a little bit about one, about that and two, about how you broke free from that. What got you to say, well, I get that I'm basically stepping out of line, right, of, of who I'm supposed to be in the family here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Like, where did you find the strength and determination to do that? Because I think that's a thing a lot of people really struggle with and can get a place they can get stuck. Yeah. And it really held me back, Steve. Let me be clear. It really helped me in many ways. In, in my book, I talk about how essentially growing up, I was all about winning the gold medals. Right. I mean, I was a star athlete growing up, a highly ranked gymnast, highly ranked tennis player, a good student in school and so forth and so on. And I realized that the way that I won affection from my parents was through performance. How much of that was them training me to be that way or my own self-imposed thinking about it? I just knew that if I was number one, my parents were happy and they were like, I, I, I can still see a picture of their faces, Steve, when I think about it. That's how ingrained this is. So I performed very well as a child and as a teenager and even as, say, an employee. So when I started my own business and I didn't make a sale for a year and a half, you have to remember that I'm coming from an even more exaggerated background of, oh, man, I have to prove to my parents that I can perform here, that I'm going to make a lot of money, that my business is going to grow really big and it's going to replace the salary I used to have and they don't have to worry about my stability and all those things. So that was really hard because they had always been in my corner, but they had always been in my corner because I had always, quote unquote, performed well and done well by the kind of common societal standards. And so it was really difficult the past 10 years to try to get their support, but realize that they just, Darren, hurry up and get a job. Like, what's wrong with you? Your life is falling off the tracks. So not only dealing with getting a business off the ground, but those people whose support means so much to you, who means the most. For me, it's my parents. For others, it could be their spouse, perhaps. And just having to step on pins and needles in every conversation because you know you're going to get some sort of lecture or guilt trip for not being enough. I, I can feel my emotion rising mm -hmm. talking to you now. It's very painful and difficult to deal with. And I think that I had to really look at my childhood and I had to really, more importantly, learn to deal with my negative feelings. And might not be clear why those two things are related, but I think for a long time, I buried a lot of these sort of negative feelings I would have against my parents about myself and just, okay, don't think about that. Just succeed. Just win. I'm a, I was a competitive tennis player right in college. Just win. Everything will be all right. Just be the best student. Everything will be all right. But I didn't learn to be with the anger I had or the guilt I had or the shame I had or whatever those sort of dark emotions were. And it was only, you know, during this entrepreneurial journey that I learned to accept those things and learn to love them as much as my quote unquote successes, because they're as much a part of me as anything else. And once I learned to exist with those feelings and literally, Steve, I, I burned my leg three days ago. It was just a stupid accident because I was pouring hot water into this mason jar, which is made of glass. Hot water and glass don't go well together. 
I wasn't being very mindful. It exploded. I had the scalding water on my leg oh, and man. I literally melted off like three, like two layers of skin. I had to go wow. to the hospital. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I've had to tend to this wound for the past four days. Like literally <laughs> gingerly put the saline solution on, gingerly put on the, the steroid cream, the gauss tape, everything. And this takes 20 minutes because I've never done mm -hmm. it before and I'm very careful. I learned to do that with, I'll call it my dark side or just maybe like my dark emotions or things I didn't want to think about. And I learned to tend those things and be with them. And I think that's what led me to realize this underlying pattern of my life will never be a success unless my parents approve, which is embarrassing to admit at my age, but unfortunately it's just running in the background. And I had to be with those dark emotions to realize that story and realize that story does not serve me for the life I want to leave. And it's that simple. And of course, I don't think I'm able to delete it, wipe it out with a brush or delete this sort of pattern. It has helped me in my life in many ways, but it also holds me back very much on the entrepreneurial path. So I need to kind of be aware of it and, and work with it. The idea that we can delete it or cover it up, it, it doesn't work. No. And I think what you're saying about the recognizing that this is still a thing that's there at this point in your life, that's not nearly as unusual as you might think, though. I talk to people all the time. I've seen so many clients where that's still there. There's still some shadow of they're trying to get some approval, some thing, and it, it is tied to their past. And they've never thought about how they're going to define success, how they're going to define what's okay, how they're going to define what matters. And I want to mm -hmm. take a minute here before we start maybe talking about your book, because I know a lot of this is what led into the book. But for you, how do you define success? One, and then two, how did you come to that definition? That is a deep question. <laughs> How do I define success? I think my definition of success has changed. I think it used to be more about my glory, like literally winning, being number one on the team, creating a really impactful business that impacts thousands of people in a positive way, et cetera, et cetera. But I think now my definition of success is being useful. I don't really, maybe it's just getting older as well, but I don't really care so much about the likes and the follows and the big numbers or the kind of status and acclaim that I definitely used to seek, for sure. I have a practice and we could talk about that practice, but I realized through my daily practice that being useful and being connected to others, that's, that's essential. And I think what's essential is being useful. So however I can do that, I used to have dreams of being like a civil rights leader. I studied political science in school, but I think I've come to this very simple legacy I want to leave, which is I just did my best to be useful and to support the people in my life. And that could be four people. That could be 150 people. It could be 12 followers on my YouTube channel or whatever it is, but just to be maximally useful and, and helpful in it for them. It's not acknowledged, I think, enough although we're certainly seeing the effects of it, that we are as a society, there's an interdependence here. And if we are not on some level looking out for others, not mm. necessarily everyone else, but uh, some others, uh, the world suffers for it. But also I think the thing you probably have found is that when we are doing things that are of service or of value to others, there's a lot that we get in the way of reward from that as well. Absolutely. I had gotten my business off the ground. It took me four years. It took me a long time. And about four years ago, I made the most money I had from my business and pretty much ran on its own. I maybe worked a day or two on it, but 
I basically, Steve, had optimized my life. I'd spent those four years trying to optimize my life for this freedom. That's what I wanted when I quit my job. Freedom from schedules and tight collars and stiff shoes and tight pants. <laughs> I don't know, wore too many tight pants as a corporate guy, but I wanted freedom from those things. And I finally got there. But then I realized it was quite, I don't want to say hollow because it did give me an opportunity to live two life dreams, you know, one to live in Colombia and one to live in Vietnam. But I just found myself feeling quite lost. And what I started to do, Steve, during that time was like, I can't rely on Tim Ferriss to solve my life for me. Tim Ferriss talks about the four-hour work week. I thought that was the dream. Um, and we could talk about the last chapter of his book, which is called Filling right. the Void, right? The reward for the four-hour work week is like existential crises, frightening moments of doubt. I, I clearly wasn't uh, a good reader of his book because I should have realized those things were coming, but I got there. I got to that last chapter in my life. And I realized, Steve, that, yeah, I had to figure out my own definition of success. And the only way I could do that was by every day ranking my day. I, I think this simple practice really helped me. And what I mean is I would rank my day negative two to two. Negative two was, excuse my language, a shitty day. And two would be an amazing, fantastic, thrilling day. And zero would be meh, average. Not hugely relevant, but I've, I'm so curious about how you came up with that scaling. Because I've heard you describe this. And I'm glad you got into it because I wanted to talk about it. How did you come up with that scale of negative two to two versus, you know, one to five or one to 10 or whatever? I'm really curious because it actually makes a lot of sense to me after yeah. I heard it. But at first I was like, huh? Yeah, what? So it started zero to five. That's so funny. The first year it was zero to five. But I realized having the negative and the positive really helped me like hammer the point home that, okay, negative one is a negative day, right? Whereas if that was two on the scale of five, I'd be like, oh, I got a two. It didn't uh, resonate with me as much as the negative and the positive and the neutral. And I didn't want to go like negative 10 to 10. I think two to negative two is just complicated enough of a scale. And my friends and I joke about it because a lot of them have read my book. And so we ask each other, literally, have your days been zeros or ones? Like, Instead of, you know, how's it going? We have this kind of code to talk about our days. And of course, not just ranking your day because that's just a number. But what did you do that day? And why did you rank your day that number? And over time, you have to come to a realization that there's certain activities in your day or certain people in your day that make you rate it a two or a negative two. And then it's as simple as trying to let go some of those negative twos people and activities and places and things, and just bringing in more ones and twos of your day into your life. And then that form can become a slightly more, have a few more questions. Because if those activities are constantly leading to your two days, why not include them in your form? So like for me, some examples would be, did you connect with loved ones? Did you do your best to connect with loved ones? Did you do your best to work on one important task that pushes your business forward. Those are two examples. So I know that if I do those things, I'm likely to have a positive day and that'll be unique to everyone. And that's the point is I, I really believe we need to draw on our own wisdom. And I, I'd be curious as a professional if you disagree with this, but I think that at least for me, I put too many gurus on pedestals and that's not to say we shouldn't learn and always be learning from the best and experts, but we also have to value our own life experience. And if we let those days pass by, like in a blur, we're not drawing the lessons of what make us come alive. And so 
I'm kind of sad that this took me, you know, until I was 37 to start doing this. I think if I had started doing this earlier, maybe I would have made some changes sooner as well. Possibly, although it might have been that you wouldn't necessarily have been at a point in your life to be able to embrace it if you hadn't had some of the other experiences that you'd had too. It's really hard to disconnect these things from the journey. And so I think we have to be careful there. But what you were saying about the piece of our own inner wisdom versus the whole, I'll say, outer wisdom of listening to others and all of that, I think it's such an important thing. And I'm glad you brought this up because we do have to watch out for putting people on pedestals and treating people's uh, models or methods or formulas as if they are some exact recipe. And like, this is the way, because that's, it's super dangerous. It is not accurate. It ignores and minimizes the incredible diversity of humans, of human interests, of what drives us, of our natures and our personalities. And so I do think we have to create space to listen to ourselves. And what I like about your daily practice of rating your day is it actually is an exercise that facilitates listening to yourself because you're saying what made this good, what made this bad. And that's how we can actively pull out some of that inner wisdom, some of that inner awareness that isn't necessarily always there um, or always obvious. I find if we create quiet, that's often a space that'll allow it to emerge. And if we pay attention, but I think this practice you've you know, put together is really a great way of facilitating. And I think that another reason we put people on pedestals, it's easier, Steve. It's easier to just tell me what to do. Yes. Our education system, maybe it's changing for the next generations, but when I grew up, at least, it was still very much a Scantron, black and white, multiple choice world with right answers, right and wrong. And not only entrepreneurship, I think entrepreneurship is a pinnacle of this, but like life itself is so, like you said, complex. And so learning to deal with this sort of uncertainty and ambiguity and figuring out our own preferences, it's actually a lot more difficult than it seems. And I've definitely struggled with it, but this sort of perfect day exercise has been the most helpful way to give myself a compass to pursue my days. I think about it as like a, a shifting compass. Obviously, those activities are going to change as my life situation and preferences and place in life changes as well, as it should. At least I have a pretty clear idea where North is now after doing this so many days. Yeah. It will evolve over time for sure. I think that's true for all of us. And I think allowing that is really important, right? Continuing to pay attention and understanding as we get through different phases of life, what matters to us changes. What we value changes. What we want changes. And a lot of the time it won't be what is what the media, what the messages in the world would have us believe it should be is not necessarily what it's going to be. And we really have to do practices that get us tuning into ourselves to go, yeah. what works for me? How do I feel when I do this? How do I feel when I do that? How do I feel around these people? And anything that brings us in tune with that, I think is really important. And anything that really brings us in tune with ourselves. Originally, when you were getting to the point of deciding to write a book, I know this idea, this perfect day concept was, that was kind of the, your initial conceptualization of what you were going to do, but then it evolved from there. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So writing a book, <laughs> I think that I was totally enamored, as you can probably tell with this idea of the perfect day. 
So I, I wanted to record it every day for myself because I was learning so much from it and benefiting so much from it. But I also was very curious about what other people had to say about their perfect day. So I just started asking, you know, over a period of year, I think I asked about 40 people, what is your perfect day? And I got some really interesting re responses that, that matched my own perfect day. For example, just about everyone said they wanted to be connected with a loved one. You know, more than I think it was 70% of the people I interviewed said they wanted autonomy in their day, that they wanted to make progress on something important to them in their day, and that they just wanted to have this sort of free, stress-free mind, peaceful mind. And I was amazed that these four things kept showing up over and over, right? Because, I mean, Steve, what's your perfect day? I knew this question was coming. I didn't actually sit and prepare an answer. I can tell you some components of my perfect day, right? And it, and that's the thing. I think for me, part of it is not that it has some specific process or flow to it, but I can tell you some of the elements that it would involve. It would absolutely involve connection and time with someone important to me, whether that's my partner and her and I doing something together, one of the things that we like doing, whether it's going and seeing a movie at the local um, art house uh, movie theater and seeing some kind of cool, weird movie, whether it's doing something fun with my daughter, right? My daughter and I, we went bowling last Saturday in the morning and it was super fun. This is goofy little thing we did for an hour, but it was really cool. So like stuff like that is really, I think, important and valuable. For me, music has to be a piece of it, not necessarily playing it, although it could be, or just listening to it. Music is a thing in my life as long as I can remember. And it's one of those things that has been so helpful to me and being able to manage my emotional state. It has pulled me out of a couple of very dark days. So that's a thing that would be there. I'd want to spend some time, I'll say someplace nice, probably by the water, having had the good fortune to grow up largely in Santa Cruz, a beach town, that environment is just, it feels home to me. It feels comforting and peaceful. So sitting by the ocean, it needs to involve some beer and some good pizza um, <laughs> uh, yes. um, for, for sure. Those I think are all elements probably would involve golf in some way, shape or form and not necessarily like needing to even play a whole round. But one of my things that I like to do in the, especially in the summertime is to go out late in the day when the course is empty and go out and just even play mm. like nine holes before dark, because it's just the solitude of that ex experience. Yes. And I know a lot of people like golf for the kind of connection piece of it. I actually like it for the environmental and the solitude aspect of it. I really prefer mm. to play by myself because it just, it feels very peaceful to me. And it's this environment where I can just focus on my not great physical skills, but at least trying to refine them a bit. But I find that very peaceful. And so for me, a lot of it's, you know, very low key. There might be something, there might be some fun element to it. Maybe another thing that uh, our, our family likes to do is we like to play games, right? And so we might do a game night and we've had a lot of nice evenings just sitting around our kitchen table playing some of our favorite card games or dice games and stuff. So obviously the connection thing, it, it is important. But with all of these things, for me, one of the things I've learned is how much of a range there is about how these things can be experienced, but still have them be valuable to me and still have them be meaningful. So like the connection could be, again, playing games with the family. The connection could be going for a walk. The connection could yeah. be bowling with my daughter for an hour. That doesn't right. specifically matter. It's the getting to have some kind of a shared fun experience around something that all the people involved enjoy and value. As long as if we go see a movie, it's got to be someplace that has good popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when I listen to you say that, I'm paying very close attention. And I urge your listeners, if they do the same thing, 
to pay very close attention to their emotions. And I can see this is so genuine and it makes it makes me kind of tingle with whatever emotions you're feeling. It's coming through the camera. Yeah, clearly, I think that's a really important thing is to really make sure everything you're saying really is, rings true in that sense. It's not just something you think you should say. To bring it back to, you know, how the book, right, became called The Failsafe Solopreneur is pretty simple. My, I passed my friend the first copy of The Perfect Day. That's what it was called. And two days later, he said, Darren, I know you, so I find this interesting, but you can't just lecture me about these concepts without telling me more about yourself. And in fact, chapter four, which was called The Four Horsemen, Failure, Anxiety, Instability, and Loneliness, this was by far the best chapter because you tell personal stories. And I find that more, much more interesting than academic theories about the perfect day or, or social studies that you're summarizing. So why don't you just tell more stories? And then that came, friend should yeah. be getting a cut of every book you sell <laughs> because he's exactly right. No, and I'm totally serious. I think I said this to you when we connected initially. One of the things I so much appreciated about your book, there's really two elements. One is that it was very human. It didn't feel like here's some like, here's this prescriptive sort of thing. It felt very human. It's like, hey, here's my journey. Here's things that I've learned. Here's some stuff that has worked for me. But also that, hey, here's some of the challenges, by the way, right? Here's some of the things that have been difficult. And here's, here's how these things interconnect. And that is something that doesn't get enough attention. I think. And the fact that you've brought that into the conversation is so valuable. Thank you so much, Steve. It, it honestly was not easy to put out there in the world because, again, my background, I'm, I like to perform. I like to be seen as strong and the best and the quickest. And to open up this way was not easy, but I felt it was the only way this could work. If these things are taboo subjects, I can't say, oh, I acknowledge your dark side and not talk about my own you know, shadow side. So yeah, I called it the fail-safe solopreneur because implied in the title are these four things, failure, anxiety, instability, and loneliness. They should be expected. They should be acknowledged and expected to tie this full circle to what you said at the beginning of the conversation. And know that this is the normal condition of someone trying to start a business. You are not alone in feeling these things. And because you're pursuing, like, like we talked about, the work-life values of freedom, and meaning and creation and adventure, you're going to face those four things. And that's why I called it fail safe, because I believe we need to focus on the downsides as much as the upsides and, and manage around them. And so let's talk a little bit about that. For you, with those downsides, what are some of the, the things that you've learned in this and the practices that you talk about in the book for dealing with, and I'll use the word integrating because you reference a Carl Jung a lot, which I think is great because I think he really had some good insights about this and the whole concept of the shadow and really the idea of integrating the shadow yes. in, into yes. ourselves. So tell me a little bit about some of the pieces of the book that to you, that you found most valuable for yourself or that you're hearing from others that are the things that really they're finding helpful in looking at these dark sides and integrating them. So I think we've covered quite a few of them in the conversation. This practice of the perfect day, this, and in a sense, that's a way of really becoming aware of what drives you. This practice of loving those sort of negative emotions and being with those very strong emotions you're ashamed of, being with those things and just sitting with them. As I think that practice has helped me so much. And really, it's just about, sorry, one more thing about uh, outsight 
this idea that we talked about building new reference points in your life, building new communities so you can ask better questions and you can realize you're not alone. Those are kind of the core, which might seem simple sort of practices, but they're so important. And I think owning the duality of everything. So whether that's the light and the dark of entrepreneurship, whether that's the light and dark of myself, whether that's the light and dark of my situation or other people, and just acknowledging that and being comfortable with that is basically been the most helpful part of, of dealing with the shadows, just acknowledging it. And, and that way I never get too high or too low. I lose a sale. It doesn't crush me the way it used to, because I know, yeah, this is just part of the this is just part of the process. You know, most businesses fail and most products fail. That's okay if your product failed. What can you learn from this and adjust and move on? And just, you know, it's a very uh, Taoist way of sort of looking at the world of owning the duality of your path and not being too attached to the way you want things to be or you expect things to be. And I know there's a lot in there, but that's what I would define as integration. You, you hit on something that I want to dig into a bit more, and it's about how do we use our struggles and failures constructively? And you, you talked about that. It's like you have a failure, you know, a product or an idea, you put it out there, it falls on its face. And it's really easy for us and a lot of people, what they do is then they pick up that failure and slap themselves in the face with it instead of going and saying, all right, that didn't feel good. That was uncomfortable. That sucked. And there are lessons here. What can I do with this? How can I learn, change, grow, adapt, adjust? And that's the integration. It's the understanding. There's a lesson there. Mm, absolutely. Right. And that you touched on that. And I think that's a great example of that. And this is where we start to recognize these feelings, these experiences, there's still value in them. There's still, I, I, I like to try and think of all of it as much as I can as raw data. It's raw data and there's value in all of it. The key is figuring out what the value is and finding a way to use it. And that can mm. be hard when the polarity of that value seems very negative. And we yes. live in a world that denies the existence of that so often. Yes. And, and that's, I think, just a fundamental problem is we like act like we're not supposed to have that or something wrong if we know. And it doesn't feel good. Of course, no one's there's no secret to making these bad feelings feel good, by the way, folks. We don't have that answer. But Darn I think, it, Steve. I was hoping uh, yeah, you were going to just dude, lay it down. If I had that, I would be driving the Lamborghini because <laughs> I would have a book that would, everyone would buy. Right. You know, but if I had that, I'd be lying because it doesn't exist also. But coming back to what you were saying about sitting with the feelings, I think what we can do is we can change our relationship with them and we can get to a point where it's not that we're ever going to necessarily love them or love yes. discomfort. The same way that I don't love going to the dentist. I'm never going to be like, yes dentist trip today ever. <laughs> but I understand that it's a part of the process. It's a necessary thing. It's fine. It's no big deal. And I think if we practice hanging out with these feelings and we step past, it's like with the dentist. If you walk into a dentist office and you look at that tray and all those tools there, all those pointy things, it's ah, I don't want that going in my mouth. If you just focus on that, that's really bad. But if you get beyond that and go, hang on, one, they're not going to use those things to injure me. They may not use any right. of them or many of them. And the whole purpose of this is to support my health and well-being and to do yes. so in the most minimally uncomfortable way possible. You're like, okay, that's a little different. And that's the thing with sitting with the feelings is, you know, if we spend time with them, they become less scary. We hang out with them a little bit. We look at them. We realize yes. one, they're just ideas, thoughts, things in our head. They're not reality. 
per se. They're real, but they're not our reality. And then we can hang out with them when we get a little more comfortable with them then we start to understand more about them. The same way that the more time you spend looking at something, it's like if you go to an art gallery and you look at a painting, if you look at it for like a second, you'll get a a very casual, simple impression of it. But if you look at it for 10 seconds, then some details emerge. You look at it for five minutes, more will. You look at it for an hour and you will have all kinds of observations that you can share about it if you're willing to hang out with it for that long. And there is so much value in all of our feelings but we have to cultivate the practice of hanging out with the negative ones. Yes. Now, to be fair, I, mean, I want to say that I have not, it's not like I'm some perfect person at this. It, it sounds like it's like, oh, here's what you got to do. But it is hard. And as someone who's played with that and done a lot of that, I still struggle with it sometimes. So mm-hmm. anyone who's trying and going, why is this still so hard? It's hard because it's hard. I love that. And I'm definitely going to listen back to what you just said, that, those two minutes to help me when I need it. But I think that Again, tending to that wound, tending, just being there with it. You don't have to think anything about it. Just look at it. Oh my gosh, it's red and a little pussy here and there. And ugh. But, you know, observe. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's it. And I, one thing I want to mention is the three words you said, no big deal. Okay. That really stuck out because who feels like their failures are no big deal, especially when the existential ones of career and life. But something that has helped me clearly. This is difficult. It has been difficult for me because of what? Ego. Because I'm so attached to this idea of who I should be, what I should be doing, what success looks like. One of my favorite quotes is by a, a Jewish rabbi. And he said, everyone has two pockets. And in one pocket, he had two pockets. And in one pocket, he would pull out a piece of paper that would say, you are nothing but dust and ashes. In the other pocket was a piece of paper that would say, you are made of the universe. And This is my favorite quote because you have both of those pockets and both of those messages available for you whenever you need them. When you fail, it sucks. Like I, I trust me, I've, I know the pain of seeing your bank account go down or whatever failure is for you, but are you really that important? You know, you are nothing but dust and ashes, Mm -hmm. right? Like I think this idea of you are nothing, you're a nobody, you're nothing in the grand scheme of things can be ironically very powerful to get past failure. No big deal. In other words, no big deal. It can be very freeing if one uses it right, right? It could also be very hard, very damaging. Exactly. So this has helped me because you can also draw on you are made of the stars in the universe, right? Like this world was made for you. Like you are made of those same elements and therefore you can do anything. So It's like this, again, duality, this integration of both these ideas is very helpful so you don't get too down and you can also stay very motivated. I think that's what we're getting at here, though, is the power of perspective and understanding that perspective is something we can choose, but we don't necessarily choose and we don't by default choose. It is influenced by what we are exposed to. And so related to that, as someone who really is aware of and thinks about some of the downsides and some of the dark sides and all of that, you've got this quote, which is probably one thing that helps, but I'm curious for you, how you manage your perspective. How do you, when your perspective is getting shoved or shifted more towards the negative and downside, how do you bring it back around to find a perspective that helps you to move, I'll say move forward to be a constructive perspective? Because just focusing blindly on good is problematic Mm. too, right? I think probably the biggest thing that has helped me in addition to everything we've talked about is having more of a being 
based identity rather than a having-based identity. In other words, we often think that I am Darren because I have this house and this Lamborghini and this bank account and this wife. I knew there was kids. a Lamborghini there. Yeah. I knew it. I don't even want a Lamborghini. Like, I, honestly, neither do I, I but it's I, just a fun thing to joke about. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm just fine with a Honda or something. Anyways, and, and I think when we start to measure our worth with having, it's a precarious and impossible and, and frustrating identity because wherever you are on the spectrum, if you have a lot, you could lose it. If you don't have a lot, you're a loser. So I, I think aside from the basics of, okay, just give this time. You're feeling awful. You're feeling down. Like just get the basics right. Get some good food, get some exercise, get some sunshine, get some space, get some sleep. Those things always help me. They don't make my problems any easier, but they they help give me more perspective just from a pure sort of uh, well-being state. I guess I'm coming at it from a, a, just a better place. This idea of being like, what does an entrepreneur do, right? What does a loving father do or a loving husband do, right? These things and just doing those things and being okay with that. Like I'm trying to provide value to, as an entrepreneur. Sometimes it doesn't work and they people don't like my offer. Well, okay, how else can I provide them value? Instead of jumping onto all the sort of negative self-talk and that piles on each other, staying within that being identity is a lot simpler for me. It also corresponds really well with what we know from the psychology of happiness. Happiness is not about having things. Happiness is about having experiences. And we recognize that, and that's a little bit simplistic as I'm describing it, but we recognize that experiences in a lot of ways contribute more to our sense of happiness and fulfillment than having things. And that's what you're talking about is being, but it is also very powerful because whether or not I might be able to have a given thing, I can be a certain way. I can always take action towards that. There's an entire model. It originated in the world of therapy, but you can use it in a coaching context too, called acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. And one of the things they talk about is values are a really core element of that, really clarifying your values. But how they define a value is something you can take action towards, which I think is a very interesting way of doing it. So you can value connection, right? Because there's always things I can do to support more connection, to be more connected. I can reach out to people, what have you. There's things I can do to be of greater service. And I can do that no matter what. I can do that whether I'm picking up trash in the street, whether I'm helping somebody who's having a hard time, whether I am volunteering in a charity, whether I'm doing the work I do in my business. And those things are really powerful. And that's what you were talking about when we talk about the idea of being versus having. And so that completely makes sense to me. I think it's a really powerful uh, reframe that can help us a lot for sure. Thank you so much, Steve, for sharing that. I love that. Like act, yeah, clarifying your values and, and taking some taking action towards them. I love that. Now, one of the things we haven't talked about explicitly here, but is all over the conversation in various ways, is the idea of comparison. We are bombarded by messages, whether it's mm. what we see on social media, what we see on the news, what we see on billboards, what we see just with what others are doing. And, and there's this inevitable tendency, I think, we have to compare ourselves. And if we're not careful, we run into this problem of that really tearing us down because, as we've talked about, a lot of people aren't sharing the, the negative, the downside. And so we do the thing of what gets called we're comparing our outtakes to someone else's highlight reel, right? I'm wondering what your experiences are around this about how do you take comparison and do something constructive with it? What do you do? How do you deal with this tendency that we have and, and make it into something uh, useful or keep it from tearing you down anyway. I struggle with this, Steve. I mean, I, I wish I could give you like 
a great answer here, but I know, I think there's been research that shows that 10% of our thoughts are involved comparison. It's a natural human thing to do. I just try to make sure that the comparison serves me the way I liken it to failing and not learning the lesson from the failure. If we keep comparing ourselves, but there's no purpose in the comparison, that's like failing without learning the lesson. That's just pure agony for the most part, unless you're, you know, at the top of the heap for the comparisons, then maybe you feel great about yourself all the time. But I just make sure my comparisons have purpose. Okay. Why am I comparing myself to this other entrepreneur who's making a million dollars and I feel so awful about myself? Like, how can this comparison with this other entrepreneur help me? Maybe it's, I can learn from how he skilled his business or how he marketed his business or how he hired great people to work from him. That's the purpose I can take or the lesson I can learn. And the other thing with comparison would be just to, again, it's the whole point of my book, but the people we read about are always the success stories, right? If we're talking about money, the average income of most self-employed people in the U.S. is around $50,000, but we don't see that anywhere in the media, do we? And you know why we don't? I've talked to journalists about this because it's not newsworthy. It's the average. And so this journalist, Elaine Pofelt, who wrote the one person million dollar business, she told me, Darren, if your business doesn't make over a million dollars, you know, it's really tough to get press. But here we go where millions of self-employed people are making a certain amount, right? You know, just beware of those shiny numbers, those big headlines, the, the podcast headline that says how X made Y in Z days, typical stuff. But those are the exceptions. That's why they capture your attention. And that's why they're portrayed in, in the media. Yeah, just kind of beware. Put, always put some context around numbers. I know I'm talking a lot about money, but I think getting more reference points for other comparisons that you might be making. Finding useful comparisons can be really helpful, right? Like I, I like to compare against old me, kind of do the thing of competing against myself because that's it, one, it's a more fair comparison, right? It, at least because I'm operating from a similar set of values, limitations, privileges, obstacles, et cetera. And, and so it's a much more fair comparison than for me, like for you and I, for example, like cost of living in California versus cost of living in Vietnam, very right. different. And very so different. if we were to just straight compare incomes, that's not actually that useful. Because it, it doesn't say anything about our lifestyle and in, because there's so many different situations, whereas if I was to look at like relative to other people in my neighborhood, at least we know relative cost of livings are similar. So I can see like, how am I doing relative to that? Not that in and of itself is all that useful in comparison, but I'm just getting the idea of we've got to compare against things that are reasonable to compare against. And a lot of the time we end up comparing against what's visible to us, which is not the norm, the median, the average, or any of that. Steve, do you think comparison can serve us? Absolutely. If we do it right. Again, I, I think it's, we want to be real careful about comparing against external things that don't have relevance or value. If we compare against either our old self, am I moving in the direction that I want to go? I think that can be useful, especially if we look at like, how did I make this progress and how can I build on it? But I also think if we have a target, and we compare ourselves to it, if we use that not to beat ourselves over the head with and to say, God, look what a failure I am. I'm not there. But if we look at what is the gap and what are things I can do to what are practices that I can follow, what, who can I be to help close that gap? Of course, because humans like to chase things. We're wired for pursuit. We are happier when we're in pursuit of things. And so as long as we use it as a thing that drives us, then I think it can be great. 
it's when we use it as a thing that's like, look what a loser you are. You're only making X or you only did X or your book only sold this many copies or your podcast only got this many downloads. Instead of just going, all right, I'm not where I want to be. I want to be here. What are those people doing? How did they walk this journey? How did they get from here to here? What can I learn from that? How can I use that? It can be good or bad. It's so much what you do with it. We're just status seeking creatures when it comes down to it. It's built into us. Yeah. Well, and because that's one of the many ways we create at least a a perceived sense of safety for us, right? Because at some level, so much of this is driven by us wanting to be connected, part of a group and wanting to be safe and secure. And so it's, it's a survival instinct thing that can get wildly wrong in some ways and can be manipulated in a lot of bad ways, but that's a whole other, (laughs) it's a whole other wild topic. Coming back to your book, one thing I wanted to ask you about too, is how was your parents' reception or what was, was their take on your book? Because it's like, you're, you're not just doing like, well, yeah, I'm going against what you want. I'm doing this whole solo, solopreneur thing, but oh, now I'm going to write a book about it. Like what, what was yeah. their take on that? You know, it was really funny because my dad in the first chapter, I, I start the book with saying what my mom told me, which is if we were like other Chinese families, we would have disowned you already, which is, she said it and it hurt to hear that. And I also say in that first chapter that my dad, you know, I I talked to my dad about, thank you so much, dad, for taking me to these countless tennis tournaments over a decade when I was competing as a teenager and sacrificing your weekends in a sense to take me to all these tournaments. And he said, Darren, it was worth it because you got into a good school. You got into Princeton University. I was like, wait, what? So before I published the book, I had a conversation with them and I was on pins and needles about it, ironically. I said, mom and dad, you know, this is what I'm planning to write. This is why I'm doing it. And we had a really open discussion and healing, actually, Steve, conversation about it. But my dad's response was simply, yeah, I I did. I meant that exactly. Like, I I wouldn't have paid for all those tennis lessons if you didn't get into, you know, a good school. So he's like, that's yeah, I'm totally fine with it. And so my mom, on the other hand, I think I think she understands me more. And I think that I understand my mom more from going through this. I realize that she's not the enemy and I don't think she sees me as the enemy. We both came to this shared realization, you know, through this book that we just have different views about it, but, you know, we love each other and we'll we'll accept, we accept more of the quote unquote bad parts of the other side. I, I think that's the best way I could put it. So I'm really glad the writing the book forced me to have this discussion with them. And also back to my dad, it made me realize, wow, like a lot of these things are just, you build them up in your head. Oh my God, what is my dad going to think about this? And he's totally, yeah, it's no big deal. Yeah, that that's totally true. Be honest, Darren. You should be honest when you write a book. I'm like, okay, dad. Yeah. So I'm curious, just this made me think of this because we're, we're talking about experiences and things and you've got your dad's perspective <laughs> on, okay, here, I'm taking you to all these tennis lessons and these tennis tournaments for this, this sole purpose of, okay, so you, you get into Princeton, but I'm curious for you, your experience of this, of not so much the tennis, but of the, you know, your dad taking you to all of these things and all of that is that experience of, you know, being driven by dad to all of these. Is that something that like, are there memories there for you? Or is that a a part of your childhood that sticks out to you in any kind of a substantive way? Absolutely. When I think about all my time spent with my dad as a kid, it was playing tennis against him. It was him taking me to the tennis courts, him taking me to the tennis tournaments. And It's a lot of time because, you know, L.A. traffic, you're in that car for a long time and he's sitting behind the fence watching you play high stakes matches. It's what I remember the most from my childhood with him. Again, experiences, right? Experiences. And I love him so much for that because I realize, you know, that there's a huge commitment from parents to be 
the stereotypical soccer dad or soccer mom. It really is. It's also interesting. The part of why I wanted to ask is, is often we'll have that where two people will have the same experience and take very different things from it. <laughs> and that, that's interesting too, right? Because it doesn't invalidate either one's experience. It's just curious yeah. how we, how we can do that. But humans are, are very fascinating and complicated creatures for sure. <laughs> We're all so different. And and that's why communication is so difficult. Like, I can't believe I'm learning this now. It's uh, endlessly com complex. So to, to switch gears here a little bit, if you're up for it, one of the things I like to do sometimes with my guests is get into a current challenge or struggle that they're wrestling with. And since you're someone mm. who is a lot more open about the dark side and the, you know, and the, and the, and the difficulties, I'm thinking like, oh, perfect. Darren's exactly someone I got to talk about this with. So if you're up for it, Let's talk about something that you're currently feeling challenged by or wrestling with in your business and see if we can identify something to help you get a little unstuck here. You know, the book, The Failsafe Solopreneur represents a decade of my life, right? Of me, we've talked about the story over the podcast. I think after publishing this book, and I hope it helps so many of your listeners, what I'm really looking to do is reintegrate, become more interdependent, as you say, become more rooted in the community I'm living with here, here in Vietnam. And business-wise, the challenge I'm really struggling with is how to attract and hire more great people to further the mission of my business, which is to help people get a life-changing education, right? Because a lot of people pursue graduate degrees outside their countries that could change their entire trajectory of their life. And I want to involve more people. I don't want to be, you know, solopreneur. I, I want to bring on just amazing people and hire more amazing people. And I think for so long, and I'm sure you, you can hear it in my story, I've been the performer, the, the tennis player, you know, such an independent sport, the podcaster, right? I mean, I love doing these things, but I know that my next step, my next stage is being more of a producer or like more of a person who brings on great people. Because honestly, Steve, I, I love working with people. And it's been really lonely to do this largely on my own. I have a few part-time employees, but largely on my own. So that's the challenge I'm dealing with. We haven't really touched on it in depth. Give, give a quick summary of your business and what it actually does, because we've skipped that in talking about you and your journey. Uh, we haven't actually talked about, about your work in any um, clear way. So yeah, so tell us about Touch MBA and, and what it does. Yeah. So Touch MBA, it's basically the place to find great information and connect with others so that you can make the best MBA investment decision. The two big components of that are figuring out which business school fits you best. And then of course, getting in, right? That's often a challenge as well. Um, I'm working with predominantly applicants looking to get into the top 50 ranked business schools in the world. And it might sound like I'm a consultant, but I'm not really. The site is more of a, like my podcast. Uh, we have tons of guides there to help people. And we put people in touch with the top business schools so that they can make more informed decisions. So it's essentially a matchmaker between top business schools, which are looking for the best talent around the world in the same way companies are looking for the best talent. And then, of course, these young professionals looking to get, you know, master's degrees to kind of accelerate their careers or s jump into new sort of jobs. I'm imagining some goofy reality show called the MBA Matchmaker now. Yeah. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think that it's what it's a really it's actually a really cool and important service because mm. as anyone who's been to school knows going to the right program, the right school, it does make a real difference. And the same way that these programs want to have the right people there. So I think it's a very important service that you're providing. 
But so for you, as you talk about expanding it and growing it and you shifting your role, yes, that shift is inherently challenging, but what about it like most concerns you or where do you have the most doubt or or, uh, fear around that shift? You know, I think it's about maybe I don't have all the resources to pay someone what they the type of salary they deserve. I think that's one part of it. So there's a sort of revenue aspect to, you know, afford someone great. But I think the main issue, honestly, is I'm a little bit of a control freak. Like I like my independence, as we've been talking about, and I like kind of doing my own thing when I want to do it. Uh, I know it comes with the costs, but it is at least part of my day that I would love to have. And I think that just adding more people, you know, at least in the beginning, I know it takes a lot more sort of work. So I think there's an element of control and vulnerability, like also letting someone see under the hood of my business is scary. So I think that's the main, if I were to guess, the main sort of roadblock, but there's the practical one as well. I I think there's ways around the money stuff. Uh, I think there's ways for me to get great people involved who are still maybe, they don't have to be full-time, but they believe in the mission of what we're doing and they really love the content we make and they'd be glad to help out. So I think there's ways to work around that. So I think the second issue is probably the main one. What are the things when you think about the idea of letting go of control some, what kind of fears does that bring up? I think there's two fears. One is that the people I hire will see, oh man, like how not that great of a business person I am, like that maybe I could have optimize so much more with my marketing and with my sales and with my operations, which I'm sure I can. And, you know, as I listen to myself say that, I'm like, that's so dumb because that's exactly why I want them as part of the business. So I think, again, it's coming back to ego. It's like, I am not the best and I need help and I have to be comfortable with that. I think there's a fear there. Now, I'm curious about this because as I recall, back in your younger days, when you were a competitive gymnast, Weren't you like a state champion? Yeah. Did you have a coach? Yeah. So I'm wondering how you can reframe this further. What you did with the, okay, bringing people in because they're experts or they can do this better than me, I think was where you were getting at with that one piece. But how can you change how you look at this and yourself so that the idea of bringing people on becomes like a powerful opportunity for you? versus a chance for you to be exposed for the like charlatan that you fear that you are, which is, I think, what I'm hearing you say in a sense, right? In a sense, in a business sense. Yeah, I, I think um, I need them. Like they, They're going to bring so much new energy to, to everything we're doing. They're going to bring so many new ideas. I've been largely doing something similar for the past five years to keep the business running. And I just think they would bring so, just so much like energy and ideas. And I need that. I really do need that. Also, the reason why I know I need to do this is to really serve the mission of what I'm doing. I need more people. I mean, I just, I can't do it alone. I think that's a really important thing for you to keep in mind, right? Is how can I take this and scale it? What do I need to do that? And what's really Mm -hmm. important, scaling it and serving more people or protecting my story about myself and how I am? I mean, I think that's definitely one piece of it. And now let's talk about this control thing, because if you go and see an orchestra perform, who's in control? The conductor? The conductor, yes. Are they playing an instrument? No. They're still in control though, aren't they? Yes. Yes. It's one thing if you're like a solo musician who's a singer-songwriter who's on the stage by yourself, right. and then yeah, you're in right. control. 
But a conductor is another form of control or influence might even be a better way of putting it. And that maybe that's the thing for you. I don't know, Mm. but I'm just, I'm throwing this all out to really encourage you to get this story you have about being in control, what it means, why it's necessary, and think about how you might shape it in a way that is still about you being, I don't know, in in charge being the, maybe this is, because this seems more like a transition from I'm doing this thing to I'm leading this thing. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So that's, I think, also a thing for you is I would encourage you to think about who are people that you can identify who have made that transition Mm. and how did they do Mm -hmm. it, right? What can you learn from there? And really what kind of, who do you strive to be as a leader? What is, what does that mean? What does leadership mean to you? What do you want to stand for as a leader? What do you want your organization to stand for? And what is that kind of, what is that person or sorry, who is that person being? To come back to that. Who yep. are they being? Yep. What are the things that they're doing? Yeah. The irony of all this, thank you so much, is that I'm an admissions officer. I'm great at spotting talent. That's what I do. And I'm a podcast host. I mean, yeah, part of that is performing in a sense, but I we've talked about this. I love to spotlight others. In fact, it's the reason why I love podcasting so much. And so why can't I do this in my business? These are skills I have. And that I do think I'm reasonably confident about. I I just, I don't know why it's taking me so long to act out on this. I I really don't. It's something like you mentioned the conductor. It's, I've actually had that word conductor in my head, but I've also had this image of Captain Kirk, Captain Kirk sitting in the chair. I think I could be that person, but I don't know why I haven't taken action on it, Steve. What are you afraid of? I don't know. The only answer that comes to mind is just like, afraid of my own potential or like, you know, transitioning into that new role and what that might mean. I, I don't know. I don't have a answer besides that. I, I'd encourage you to poke around at that some, because I suspect there's something there. Although I think what you're getting at is important too. It, I think you're at a place with your business where it's successful, it's stable, it's yep. working and things are okay. And the idea of doing something to it, if we want to look at it from one frame, you're basically taking this perfectly functional thing, like this perfectly functional home. And you're like, I'm going to basically tear this thing down and build a new one. What if that doesn't work? What if that goes wrong? Can I do that? Should I do that? That's a lot of effort. That's uncomfortable. And that's all that. And, And I think this also comes back to the question that I would suggest that you might want to explore. And if you've got some thoughts on it, I'd love to hear them right now. Why do you want to make this bigger? Why more? What's that about? What's the importance of that for you Mm. and what you're here to do in the world? Okay, so I wrote down both questions. I think what I'm afraid of, it's not just the business, it's a representation of my life for the past 10 years. And I think that changing it, changing what has worked is also signaling in a way that in a deeper level that I'm I'm making a big change in my life because yeah, I think that's kind of the symbolism of it. And then then in terms of why I want to, do this, it's because just so many more people need to know, I mean, not to sound arrogant, but like need to know about what we offer. The people that do find us, they say like, we're the one of the resources that most shaped and helped their journey. And that's why we have such great fans, but that there's, that's a relatively small number compared to, you know, the number of people that, that are applying to business school. And I just really want to further the missions. You know, people need help finding the right training program. It doesn't have to be, you know, elite business schools. It could be, you know, 
life-changing business education will certainly evolve in the next decade. And I love the space. And I think it can be so much more than what it is now. Right now, the business is really an extension of me and it, it could be so much more bigger and diverse and richer and help so many more people, most importantly. So a secondary question that comes up for me here is, you are able to help more people and more schools to make better matches, to help more people find the right program. And it, what is the downstream impact of more people finding the right MBA, in your case, program? Like what happens from there? So they find a program that's a better fit for them. So what? So what? That could lead to so many things. Obviously, kind of a jump in salary. It could mean a huge increase in earning potential. It could be immigrating to a new country. It could be supporting their families back home from where they're from. We work with a lot of candidates from developing countries. Yeah, it could just be getting so much more joy out of life from switching from a drudge or like a job they don't really like to a job they enjoy much more. Yeah, really increase some their level of happiness too. And what are the ripple effects of that if they're doing work that they enjoy, work that matters to them versus uh, work that's a drudge? How does that change things further from that? A lot of people hate work. I love work. And I believe that someone who loves what they're doing is a light to the world. It means that they're working with love. As Khalil Gibran says in his book, The Prophet, what is work but love made visible? It's like one of my favorite quotes. And I, I believe that. Maybe some of your listeners will disagree, but yeah, that's it's a brighter world if people are, are where they want to be. So what you're talking about by trying to take and transform and enlarge your business is giving you an opportunity to bring more light to the world. I really believe that, yeah. I think you need to stay connected to that. And I agree with you completely, by the way. I'm, I'm thinking about this in the context of my own experience. I went to Brown and though I did a fair amount of evaluation of colleges and such, in retrospect, it's easy for me to see that while I ultimately was able to make it into a positive experience for me, Brown was not the best fit for me. And that really had a lot of problematic implications for me and really detracted from not only my initial experience, but it really impacted how I entered into the world after college. Mm. And I can think about like how much of a difference would it made for, have made for me if I had at an undergraduate level a similar service that did a better job of really identifying, not just academically, but exactly. socially, environmentally, yeah. all kinds of different ways, right? What is the right school and the right kind of thing that's a fit for me and who I am and where I was at that point in my life? Because much as the academic freedom of Brown and certain things about it, especially in the context of the Ivy League, make it look like a real good fit. In a lot of ways, it really was not a great fit for me from a personality and identity standpoint. And so I'm thinking about this for my own story. I'm like, wow, a service such as yours would have really been helpful. And so then we think about it in the context of people pursuing an MBA and doing things like that, I think there's a lot of potential and power there. And that's mm. both really cool and really scary, right? Yeah. And so I think that's something that could be very powerful for you. Thank you so much. I've written down all your questions. I'm going to think about them after this, this call. Appreciate uh, you guiding me along here. So we know at least part of what is, is next for you is looking to, to take Touch MBA and, and to expand on it. But what other things are on the horizon for you? Do you think you might write another book? Do you have other ideas for things that you're hoping to do along your journey? Fortunately, I've had a couple of readers reach out to me. They've been you know really excited about the book. So I'm working with one of them to build this Discord community where we can find more accountability and basically stay more healthy and more productive as solo founders. 
that's really cool. So that's growing and it's a really fun space to implement the lessons of the book. So that's something we're building up. And yeah, another reader wants to build an app about the perfect day. So that's something I'm looking into. I think what's next for me is doing exactly what we just talked about in the past 20 minutes. I think that's really my priority for this part of the year. And like you said, it's scary. It's, it's a big life step for me. So that's what I'm really focused on. And Steve, because I, I love the podcast medium, I love streaming, like streaming is something I'm really um, digging into and I love to write. It's a part of my perfect day doing those three things. So I want to keep doing those things and just trying to find the optimal space where, again, I can be useful. And I'm still groping and groping is the bad word. I'm still uh, sensing my way around, you know, what that could be. But I know I want to keep writing and honing the craft of being a better communicator and being, you know, entertaining as well, being more entertaining as well. So that's kind of where I see myself going. And I'll be in Vietnam. I'm looking forward to like really building up a team here and, you know, growing along with the country. And yeah, I think that's what's next. Sounds pretty exciting. Yeah. And I also know, I mean, I hope your your listeners, I've been wanting to get back to this is I hope they learned something new about you through this episode <laughs> too, Steve. I, I, actually, probably, because I think there's a few things that I probably haven't talked about before. And and so, you know, you know Darren had referenced a couple points about him him being more comfortable and liking to shine the spotlight on others. And you probably noticed him, him doing that, which is fine. I saw I saw what you did there, Matt. And that's, no, that's totally, that's well, totally cool. And, and I'm going to bring it back around just to remind people, <laughs> beer, pizza, golf, game nights, connection, music, water. Steve really likes music, everyone. Now we know his, his weak spot or strong spot. So yeah. In my, te- my teenage years, to share another story about this, but speaking of perfect day, like in the summer, I would work in the morning for like four hours. And then I would go down, I'd take the bus downtown and I would go wander through downtown Santa Cruz to, and I'd go to all the record stores and see like what was there and get records and posters. And then I'd go home and spend the afternoon like reading and listening to music and then maybe hang out with my friends a little bit later. Like that was like perfect day as a kid. I remember as a, as a younger kid, listening to stuff on my clock radio as a little kid and enjoying that. So yeah, I, I wouldn't dispute that music is, is a thing that is, it's always been there for me. And it's something that's really, again, really powerful. And I love in these days with streaming services, I have literally, I built mood playlists for different situations that I use to help me if I'm feeling down, to help me. I, I made a playlist. Actually, it was a mixed CD at the time when I passed my licensing exam. I made a play, I made a CD that I didn't let myself play until after I passed the exam. And I made another one that was for studying. So it's it's one of those things that's always been there, yes. We have so much in common, Steve. I, I was the exact same way. Not clock radio for me, it was cassette tapes and then CDs, but yes. And can I make a suggestion? Yes, please. Why not bring more awesome music into the podcast? I, I haven't explored like the, the potential licensing implications of that. That's a fun idea though. You're yeah. right, because it is, is a thing that would make some sense there. I'll just bring more musicians on the podcast. Yeah, bring more musicians. It's actually something I'm thinking a lot about on my show as well. Like, you know, how to really liven up the podcast experience. And for me and you who love music so much, like, why not have it be more part of our shows? So it's just something to think about. And thank you for sharing that, Steve. That's That's a fun idea. I love that. For folks who want to get connected with you, learn more about you, I know your book's called The Failsafe Entrepreneur. It's available in all the usual and typical spaces. And there is an audiobook version, right? Read by you, I believe? Yes, read by me. 
and I really do recommend that you pick it up. It's, it is an excellent book. It's very digestible. It's very actionable and it, it, it's multidimensional. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get Darren here on the podcast, because it really does get real and in, into stuff. And so I think it's a great book for anyone who is in business on their own. I think it's something that is a really worthwhile addition to your library. I'll have links in the show notes for that. But what's the best way for people to reach out and get in touch with you directly? You can find me at upstartist.tv. So that's U-P-S-T-A-R-T-I-S-T dot TV. I write a basically like a newsletter every two weeks. And I also have a podcast there where I explore you know, entrepreneurial well-being and uh, doing your best work. I think I'm much more influenced by the East. So I look at a lot of sort of ancient philosophy and principles there as well and embodied intelligence. So if that interests you, you can check me out over there. Yeah, I'll have a link to that as well in the show notes and uh, reach out. Darren's, Darren's an interesting guy. There's, there's a number of things we didn't even get into today about some of his background and history, but Darren, thank you so much for taking the time this evening for you to be on the podcast. As always, it's great to talk to you. I am mostly only sorry that you are halfway around the world for me um, because otherwise I would let you beat my ass in tennis because that's exactly <laughs> how it would go. And then I would buy the beer and pizza after. I think you're hustling me, Steve. I'm sure you're a lot better than you let on. I've got a few things I'm okay at, but tennis is not one of them. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can get show notes, information about my coaching services, or just send me a note at sensitiverebel.com. Until next time, keep moving forward.